I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, an advocate, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. John fourteen twenty five through 26. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. John 15, 26 through 27. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. John 16, 7 through 14. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Luke 24, 44 through 49. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Acts 1, 4 through 8. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard from, of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Today we are doing chapter 5a of the uh, Grace Upon Grace series. And today's title is called Grace Delivered, the Spirit of His Grace. Now... 
In Roman numeral one, our theme verse has been uh, John 1, 16 through 17, which basically tells us that grace came through Moses, but it came to its fullness or it was realized. Grace came upon grace, grace in addition to grace, grace plus grace came in Jesus Christ. Uh, we looked at our series titles here are in Roman numeral t- uh, uh, two there, and, and we basically have six messages in uh, two sections. The first three messages were basically a section we call Grace Reexamined, and the second section we are in the middle of called Grace Delivered. When we did the first, the chapters on Grace Reexamined, uh, we saw that grace is more than unmerited favor. That is the most unmerited favor is the most popular definition of, the, of grace in all of evangelicalism today and most Protestantism, and even among Catholics, actually. And uh, it's more than that. It's divine empowerment to manifest his glory and do his will. Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, which we're going to be looking a little bit at today, with, we're going to cover John 13 through 17, in John 17, part of Jesus' high priestly prayer is he says, Father, I glorified your name on earth by accomplishing the work you gave me to do. The work God gives us to do, the way we can glorify him is by accomplishing that work. When we accomplish what God's given us to do for the day, we have glorified God that day. So grace empowers us to do that. Grace empowers us to manifest his glory by accomplishing his will. Uh, We looked at grace plus theologies, five approaches to grace, and we said that the only biblical one is grace plus grace. Grace plus grace empowers us or enables us to be all that God has called us to be. The most popular one in our day, of course, is grace plus licentiousness or grace plus lawlessness, that grace allows us to do whatever we want uh, we don't, we don't, the law of God's not important because we're under grace and, and we're just called to walk according to love and we can redefine love however we need it to be. Uh, so grace plus licentiousness is, is the most rampant one today. But throughout history, there's been great works plus grace, grace plus works and so forth. And we looked at all that in chapter two. Uh, in chapter three, we looked at what it takes to grow in grace Grace is a relationship. Grace was realized through Jesus Christ. It's not just the inscripturated word of God, but it's the living incarnated word of God that imparts to us grace. As we fellowship with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ, 1 John 1, we experience his grace flowing in and through and out of us. And as we walk in grace, in the power of his grace, uh, we grow in that by having appropriate attitudes and actions for appropriating more grace. It's, it's a mystery because grace is initiated by God, it's perfected by God, and it's completed by God. However, uh, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2, 12, and 13. And, but then he says, because it's God that's at work in you, both to work in the will for his good pleasure. That's uh, seemingly irreconcilable ideas meshed in one idea. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's not really you who's at work. It's God who's at work in you. So um, then we looked at, uh, in chapter four, we looked at grace delivered. We ended up kind of bogging down with that uh, because grace delivered deals with the, the idea called the plenary inspiration of scripture, that it's the sum of God's word that is truth. We have really 
uh, in modern times, uh, didn't kind of a McDonald's chicken McNuggets approach to God's word, parts is parts, and it's all, but we never put it back together. And um, we, we never see the major themes of scriptures and the major symbolisms and the major purposes that God is working toward an eternal purpose from Genesis to Revelation. And he gives us clues uh, consistently throughout the scripture uh, as to his, his identity and what he's doing and all sorts of things. So um, we've uh, talked about reductionist paradigms that all of us have been affected by. A paradigm is, is a set of assumptions held among a, a, a community, uh, an academic community, or any other a Christian community. About, and those assumptions are held um, and often unconsciously. And so we go to Scripture thinking we're actually, uh, you'll hear, you, you know that someone is subject to this whenever they tell you, oh, it's just the Bible. We're our church, we follow just the Bible, which means they follow just all the modern paradigms about the Bible that have, that have developed since the advent of, of Darby and Schofield and, and the modernist fundamentalist controversy. So we broke, today I, I kind of recategorized those for you, but we looked at about nine or 11 of those over the last few weeks, and they fall into these categories. False dichotomies, such as the living incarnated word against the inscripturated word. That's kind of a, uh, the Eastern Orthodox and Catholics would hold up the living in, in script, incarnated word and Protestants hold up the inscripturated word and, and they make some, a big false dichotomy out of this. And the truth of the matter is, is you need to encounter the living incarnated word through the inscripturated word. They, they work hand in glove. He, Jesus is called the word of God in Revelation and John 1 and so forth. Jesus says in John 15, 3, you're already clean because the word I've spoken to you, speaking of the inscripturated word, right in the middle of a passage of about nine verses that's all about how you need to abide in the living word himself. And so uh, they're, they're not a, it's not the dichotomy that we've made it in our overly, uh, in, you know, logical, systematic world. Uh, reason versus experience has become a dichotomy. People will say, oh, you guys are too experience oriented or you guys are the frozen chosen. You're too, and they're, you know, people who tend to be Holy Spirit and experience oriented tend to be pretty anti-history and anti-intellectual. People who are anti-experience uh, and power and gifts for today tend to, tend to, to uh, uh, be anti-experience and, and, uh, some of those groups are also anti-intellectual. Some of them are very intellectual. Uh, but it's a false dichotomy. Reductionist gospels, we looked at this individualized salvation, which has become rampant. My personal savior is the most common expression in Protestantism today, but it does not appear in the Bible. There's no place you can find the word personal savior in the Bible. Jesus never saves an individual except for to put them in his corporate purpose uh, the nation he's building, his church. He does love you individually, and you do have to go through the door of, of Christ individually, but in order to become part of his family. And you will never know him in, in his fullness apart from deep intermeshing with his family. So uh, most people fit their careers their church life and everything around their career, career first and or family first or jog. I, I really want to live in a warm temper climate and I'll find a good church there. But God's priority is where has he placed you in his family? And if it happens to be in, 
in the de Sahara Desert, well, that's where you belong, whether you like the climate or not. And, uh, and God will give you grace to fit uh, all of your life into that. So we looked at uh, uh, hermeneutical paradigms that have developed, anti-intellectualism and anti-history, dispensationalism and all of its, its children and grandchildren, including antinomianism, retreatist, pessimillennialism, and anti-supernaturalism. Now, anti-supernaturalism is a great segue into what we want to look at today, and it's the idea that God does not move in power anymore. It's what I call, in, in practical reality, it works itself out to, although this may seem harsh, it's really the practical outcome. God is dead, or God is a deist. God uh, started the universe, and maybe because we're Bible believers, we think he moved in power with Moses, and then in Elijah, and then again in Christ and the apostles, but that's it. God is not the same. Those were special dispensations. Uh, there are special reasons to believe that God only moved in power during those times. There is no scriptural reason to believe that. There are two main sources of that idea that have both uh, the world affects the church and the church affects the world. But the world has affected the church in the sense that we are post-enlightenment, and since the enlightenment, we have been systematically brainwashed in Western culture to, to the point where it's, every, it's in every fiber of our being and thinking uh, that we are skeptical, cynical, unbelieving, and we do not acknowledge the supernatural. And uh, Jesus wants to save us from that. Jesus was all about, he walked by the power of the Holy Spirit, and God is a spirit. Those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. And by definition, where God's presence is, there is the miraculous. And now, some, some uh, Christians will open the door just a little bit to say, okay, but I allow for the Holy Spirit to give me some sense of his, of his joy and his anointing when I'm preaching the gospel to people. And I sense the Holy Spirit can do regeneration, and, and people will actually be convicted by the Holy Spirit and draw, but no more. But you know what? The Holy Spirit does what he does. And he does. there's no reason to believe he's changed. There's no reason to believe the Trinity is changed. Hebrews 13, 8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Whatever his ministry was in all eternity, in, in his incarnation, is what it is in his ascension and his resurrection. As we're going to see today, he actually said it would be greater because he was sending a second advocate that we're going to look at today. He's the first advocate. The second advocate is, um, is the Holy Spirit. Now, Hebrews 10.29, in kind of a negative verse, uh, a verse that's kind of controversial, because Hebrews 10.26 through 29, uh, the, the uh, early church really wrestled over the book of Hebrews primarily because of that passage and because no one else, no one knew the author. And what the criteria for for books being included in the canon was they knew it was written by an apostle or a disciple of an apostle. No one knows who Hebrews was written by. And so that uh, caused some concern. But also, Hebrews 10, 26 through 29, seems at least on the surface to be saying that the chosen can become apostate. 
that you can it, that you can resist the grace of God, that you can go on sinning willfully, and somehow those uh, the, it undermines kind of the concept of the perseverance of the saints, which was an important concept not only in the Reformation but in the early church's thinking. So the church wrestled with whether to include the Book of Hebrews over that single passage. Now I don't want to deal with that today. Uh, but I, because uh, I don't know if I know the answers to those questions. However, in the middle of that discussion, he calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Grace. He's talking about those who've resisted the Spirit of Grace, but nevertheless, he's calling the Holy Spirit the Spirit of God's Grace. Now, Peter said his, in in opening his first epistle, talks about the chosen who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying, or it's, which means setting apart work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that sanctifies us. You, he started sanctifying you before you even knew he was knocking on your door. He came convicting you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He came to reveal Christ to you. He came to make put leanness in your soul or whatever reason he, he got your attention. And he is continuing continue to sanctify you through repentance and and trusting in God and conversion and the new birth and he continues to sanctify you as you mature in the Lord and he will continue to sanctify his church all of us together unto we go to be with Christ so the the holy spirit is the spirit of grace he's he's the he does the sanctifying work now, we're going to look at the Holy Spirit, but in, before we do, I want to introduce us to a concept that we've talked about in this church before, and the concept is that there's a locus classicus. Now, this word is actually used in secular literature also. Uh, in, it, in secular, I kind of put more, mostly the secular definition here, but it's the primary case or example that is often used. Uh, in other words, if a concept has come to have some quote from literature to illustrate that concept uh, that's sometimes called the locus classicus. It's an authoritative or often quoted passage that has become a standard for the elucidation or the illumination of a word or a subject. Now, we talked about the locus classicus for the plenary inspiration of Scripture that's in two verses. There's two loci classici. Uh, one is Psalm 119, 160, the sum of your word is truth. And the other is 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed or inspired by God. Okay, so today we're going to look at the locus classici. That is the main verses that Jesus gives us about the Holy Spirit. Now, all of these come uh, in two portions of scripture. Okay, they come... Uh, both in the Last Supper, which, of course, each of the Synoptic Gospels cover the Last Supper. John covers it in John 13, 14, 15, and 16. Then they cross the book, Brook Kidron, and, uh, and they go to Gethsemane, and he continues in his high priestly prayer in chapter 17. Now, if you really want to understand some things about what this is going on, you know, John Weiss has been encouraging us a lot to read large chunks of Scripture. And this is certainly one of them. Uh, really, you should read John 12 through 21. Those nine chapters of the book of John are the last week of Jesus' life 
uh, in, from a zoom-in perspective. And uh, the Last Supper dialogue, 13, 14, 15, and 16, in my opinion, is holy ground. I mean, take off your shoes, metaphorically, in your heart. Get, humble yourself before God. It is amazing stuff. Because what is happening in those chapters is uh, John, Jesus, has a mission to conquer this world. And he has invested that whole mission in 12 disciples and a small band of followers that never amounted to more than probably 120, as the book of Acts gives us in chapters 1 and 2. And we don't know for sure how many people were in the upper room, at least the 12, perhaps only the 12. But uh, Jesus is down to his final time with them. And he's saying, I've been, I've been teaching you. I've been loving you. I've been instructing you. I've been putting up with you. He didn't say that. I did. But, I, <laughs> but he probably has. But he had been. He's been, I've been I, I'm investing everything. The whole mission of God is in you guys. And I'm down to my last chance to explain it before I suffer and die for your sins. And before I, therefore, am risen and live in a period of 40 days among you and ascend to the Father and pour, pour out the Holy Spirit. So I, you guys are about to be panicked because it's not in your thinking that I, although I've been telling you since Matthew 16, when Peter said, behold, thou art the Christ, I've been telling you that the Son must suffer. It is not in the contemporary religious atmosphere of Israel. They kind of had a somewhat a similar to the modern day faith message, uh, modern day bless me thing of the Pentecostals and Charismatics that uh, there's no suffering. There's just blessings and promises. And they didn't have a, uh, a kind of room in their theology for God smiting and chastising every son he receives. They saw correction as rejection as our culture does today. And so the, the Jews, the reason the Jews couldn't get their mind around Jesus, even through the first uh, centuries after Jesus' ascension and glorification and the growth of the church, is they couldn't understand someone blessed of God would be tortured that way, would be rejected that way, would be spat upon, his beard ripped out, his back ripped off, hung, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Can't you see that in scripture, they would say? How can God's servants suffer? And that was so deep in the religious consciousness of Jesus' day that no, Jesus had explained to the disciples he was going to suffer over and over again. They just didn't get it. They didn't believe it. They didn't want it. It didn't fit, you know, it wasn't where they were sending their TV dollars. Nothing. Peter even said, Lord, this will never happen to you. And Jesus, being that warm, friendly, fuzzy guy that we know him to be, said, get thee behind me, Satan. What are you kidding? You don't want me to suffer? You're not putting your, your mind on God's interest, but man's. This is the context of what he's trying to passionately tell these guys in John 13, 14, 15, and 16. So he, he says, I'm going to go to the Father, and you're going to be sad. But you, it's because you don't get it. It's really better. And I'm about to explain to you how it's going to be better in many ways for four chapters. 
Now, it's interesting that John's gospel doesn't mention the meal at all like the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He doesn't mention the Passover or the significance of it. He totally deals with the teaching or the discussion, the diatribe of Christ, which he starts by changing what it means to serve the Father and to be a leader for all time by taking off his robe, nakedness being the symbol of shame and humility, girding himself with a towel, and, taking, and coming and washing the disciples' feet. And they're like, no, no, that's not right. You're the king. You're our Lord. We, and he says, you call me teacher and Lord, but so I am. But I've done this to set an example. The Greek word there means a model or pat. I've given you a new pattern. For now on, the great kings and the great presidents, what, what if... Uh, you know, what if the president of the United States pulled up in Grace Christian Fellowship's parking lot? And it would be more appropriate to do it at Grace Christian Fellowship than a megachurch. This is what Jesus, this is, this is 12 guys that everybody thinks are fruitcakes. Except Jesus. Everyone thinks they're losers. They're the guys who the rabbis didn't show, choose. They didn't qualify for any of the big rabbis like Gamaliel, like Paul had. They were just fisher guys. And he could, it'd be like, it really would be like the, the Queen of England. It, it's probably more like that. The Queen of England pulling up to some little podunk church. And instead of coming in to sit and listen to the message, she got out of her car and started washing everyone's cars. And she didn't allow a fanfare to come or secret service or the press or anything. And when you came out, you, you found your car washed and waxed and, and the Queen of England waving by as she left. That's, I mean, I don't know how to open our minds up to understand what Jesus is doing here. But it's off the charts crazy good. It will for all time be the pattern that we will always fall short of in this life, but we must press to, on to try to approximate in our love for one another. Then he demonstrates to the disciples uh, in the past that, that they don't get anything yet. Three and a half years and they don't have a clue. They have, they're missing two very important things. Now, this really helps me because what's the most important thing is people, what, in our culture, Christians are taught right away to start learning about Scripture and, and uh, getting water baptized and what do you believe about this and that issue and then so forth. And Christians, when you meet people, they start to posture. I believe in casting out demons. I believe in the Holy Ghost. What, whatever. I believe that Christians should never drink. I never would touch you know, whatever, they're posturing in various ways. But the truth of the matter is you have to wait them out till they're, if you're going to make a disciple and really take someone further, you got to wait them out till God brings a level of humility where they can be broken down and realize that we are more immature than the Corinthian church. 
that the reality is if you define what it means to be a spiritual child, a spiritual adolescent, and a spiritual adult, the way Paul does in 1 Corinthians and the way 1 John does in 1 John chapter 2, we come in, we think we're really mature when we're in fact spiritual children. In fact, that's a mark of childhood and adolescence is all adolescents think they really know more than their father, right? We all go through a phase. My father doesn't know crap. I'm, you know, Mark Twain said I left home when I was such and such an age. I came back a few late years later and I was amazed how much wisdom my father had acquired in such a short period of time. <laughs> I always like the way he puts things. But, uh, you know, we, that's part of our spiritual immaturity is we don't want it. We don't, we can't be discipled. People come in this door and they're not ready to be discipled. Sometimes we have to wait them out one, two, three, four years before they're ready to quit being defensive and just accept the fact you're a spiritual baby. <laughs> and if you can get, if you can, if you can have the confidence before God to say that, yeah, I'm a spiritual baby. I don't have it together. I don't know much. I'm just taking the first few steps into this journey. Then you can, you can really help someone grow. I'm so glad that I was uh, born into a, a, a kind of Christianity that's very rare today that was much more common in the 70s where you come to the Lord and the elders of the church say, shut up, you don't know nothing. You're just a baby pooping your diapers and we will help you grow. <laughs> we love you, but we're going to change your diapers and we're going to help you. We're going to feed you milk and get you ready for food. And we're going to, and, and see, I mean, it's, it's this whole individualistic on your own thing. And it leads to this, I, I'm combative. I don't, don't rebuke me. I, I, you know, and, and Jesus, Jesus is purposely letting the disciples know you don't know anything. You're at the beginning. A very good place to start. As, uh, uh, what's her name? Julie Anders once said, and what was that movie? The Sound of Music. You know, if you could get to that place in reality before God, God could teach you so much. And older Christians could teach you so much. But until you get there, God loves you enough that he's, that he's going to continue. He resists the proud because he loves them. And he knows the thoughts of the proud from afar, which is where he keeps them. And he wants to break you down until you get humble enough to be teachable. So Peter says, he's not that humble. He says, Lord, what are you talking about? I love how Peter is always saying, Jesus, you really don't have this quite right. I, let me just adjust you here a little bit. That's what he's saying. Jesus, you just need a little adjusting here. What do you mean I can't follow you now? Jesus, let me tell you, you don't you understand who I am. I'll follow you anywhere. I'm really full of zeal. For, I love God. I worship. And when they have worship, I break the pews and I shout. And, and man, I read my Bible more. And I, Jesus, I'm going everywhere with you. Don't worry. Nothing's going to. I'm like bed bugs. You're not going to be able to get rid of me. <laughs> Maybe if somehow there was a positive connotation. But I, and Jesus says, oh, Peter, 
Now, putting together some of the synoptics, and the synoptics, it says, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. I've prayed. I'm going to carry you through it. I'm the reason you're going to get through. I've prayed for you that your faith won't fail. And when you've been humbled and broken and turn again, strengthen your brothers. And then in John's account, he just lets him know, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. Thomas, a little bit more humble. Lord, we don't know where you're going. What's up with that, Lord? How can we possibly know the way? Come on, Lord. What good talking cryptic here? You're going to go, where are you going? <laughs> How am I supposed to know the way? You didn't give me a Google Maps or nothing. I didn't even have uh, whatever those devices are. Yet. Uh, what do they call those things? GPS, yeah. <laughs> you know. Philip, you know, he's more in the Hebrew tradition here and understands about Jesus revealing more fully the Father. Lord, show us the Father. Then we'll, we'll know the way to where you're going. And what that, they, none of them have any self-knowledge or understanding. Now, there's, there's a popular line of thought that says they got a whole lot more after the resurrection. And Jesus breathes into them and says, receive the Holy Spirit in John 20. And Jesus restores Peter and uh, um, so forth. I got to get this thing right. Anyway, um, but in Acts 1, the verses that Jason read to us, among he read all these verses to us. They say, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, it was, again, we talked about the religious milieu expecting a Messiah that they couldn't, they didn't have room for a suffering Messiah. They thought the Messiah was going to be a conquering king in splendor robes with lots of golden diadems. And he was going to set up the kingdom of David in a geopolitical sense by a cataclysmic event. Just like modern Christians are expecting that Jesus will come and split the Mount of Olives and restore Israel to be, that's the faith of 95% of evangelicals. It has nothing to do with the Bible. It's completely modern construct. There we're expecting a, a top-down, outward-in, geopolitical, cataclysmic, one-time establishment of the kingdom. And Jesus didn't come to bring that came the kingdom. He decided to be born in a manger among stinky animals and dung. And every time they wanted to make him that kind of king, he slipped away. Because he didn't come. He, he said, Pilate, I pity you, fool. <laughs> Mr. T, uh, version of Jesus. Uh, I, my kingdom's not derived from this realm. Now, these disciples didn't get any of that yet. And this is, this is after the resurrection. This is the day of the ascension. This is the very last message. And Jesus says, it's not for you to know time and epics, which the Father is fixed by his own authority. Here's what you're supposed to do. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you won't witness, you'll become witnesses. Your very life will exude 
witness, which by the way is the Greek word martyrian, which we get martyr from, you'll, you'll be constantly dying every day so that the life of God may be manifest in you. And from glory to glory, fragrance to fragrance, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 3, you will show the world my glory. Now, let's uh, continue. Flip over the page. Now, this, uh, as we've said, this last supper and these essential, the, what I'm calling the ascension preamble, the last things Jesus said before he ascended. A preamble is like an introductory paragraph. Uh, what Jesus is saying this is hereafter, I'm going to occasionally make some sort of appearance like he did to Paul on the road to Damascus like he did with John on the Isle of Patmos. I've been with the Lord 40 years, and I had one vivid dream of Jesus once that was so vivid that everyone hit their faces and was worshiping. Uh, and then I woke up and found out it was a dream. Jesus is here, but he's here by the Holy Spirit. And what he's trying to open their eyes to is that's very much better than if he were here physically. Mostly, he'll continue his ministry by the Holy Spirit through the church. Therefore, these, the two texts contain straightforward illumination or illustration regarding the Holy Spirit. That's what is mostly talked about in John 13 through 16 and in Acts 1. Now, what is Jesus is saying is, is that you have to have these the kinds of encounters he's talking about in those chapters, they have to become more than theoretical. They have to become both your theoretical framework and your experience. And until such time, you have to humble yourself and cry out to God, help us, we're blind, deaf, naked, wretched. Our experience is sub-biblical. Quit the posturing and thinking we're such mature Christians until people are being raised from the dead, demons are being cast out, uh, words of knowledge are flowing, prophecies coming. That's what God intends for the body of Christ in all times and places. And we've somehow reduced it to theoretical abstractions because of our Greek rather than Hebrew approach to the scriptures. Our, God desires our experience of the Holy Spirit to match the Scripture's experience of the Holy Spirit. And until then, we have a whole lot of humbling, crying out, seeking, fasting, and, and, and we need help. Jesus, I'm yours. Save us. Until... The, you know, Jesus understood the Pharisees were thinking thus and thus. It is not unreality to meet people and know what kinds of demons they have the very second you see them it's not re unreality to know if their spirit has been regenerated it's not unreality to know if they've been baptized in the holy spirit it's biblical normalcy it's what god destines for you and it's a it's a great place to live and dwell Yes, it will mean some people will hate you before they ever meet you because they have demonic spirits that are really nervous around you. 
but I'd rather live in that realm. But they really didn't like Jesus when he walked in that realm. That, this is not fantasy land. Our own, actually, our version of Christianity today is fantasy land. This is biblical normalcy. Point six there, God desires our experience. We already did that. Point seven, our re-examining these things it must lead more than just to rediscovering them intellectually but they need to be restored in a body of Christians that lives this way. I am asking everyone in our church to read the book, The Holy Spirit in You. Emily has restocked four or five copies back there. It's available on Kindle download. It's a very important book to, to at least get started going. Almost everyone in our church has been baptized in the Holy Spirit, has spoken in tongues, and enjoys a lively kind of worship. The reason we're going back to having a Friday night worship that Edwin and others have, have been trying to get us to, praying for us because we really need to worship sometimes just kind of unlimited. But we've got to step from there into at least prophesying, tongues and interpretation, words of knowledge and words of wisdom because those are the stepping stones into working of miracles and so forth that we must have or we must just, or we're just an abstraction. There is no biblical precedence for a kind of Christianity that doesn't have that in it. And I don't want to be a part of a church that doesn't have that in it. I hope you feel the same. Getting a few nods. Hopefully you feel the same. I, do you want to be a part of the church where, you know, the, the, when the guy's begging for alms, you have to go, well, silver and gold, I have none. And I have nothing else to give you either. <laughs> That's where we're at too often. You know, there's the great story that the Pope once said, you know, isn't it great that we don't have to say any more silver and gold that I have none? And then it's attributed to various prophetic guys, Luther, and et cetera. But, you know, it's really probably not even a true story. But the response is, yeah, and neither can we see, be, be healed, rise up, and walk again. We, we, we desperately need to understand that Jesus constantly calls himself the pattern, the model. Unfortunately, so many English translations say example, but look it up in the Greek, get you know, get blue letter Bible and click on wherever he says, I set this example, and you'll see that the Greek word means pattern, model. Just like the tabernacle was a fair pattern, a foreshadowing of things to come. Now, Jason has read these scriptures in point six, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to press on and get into uh, as much as I can of 10 statements that Jesus makes. Now that I've set the table, you might say, I'm probably not going to be able to to get into much of it. But now, th these are 10 things Jesus says about the Holy Spirit in John 13 through 16 and in Acts 1. First, the Holy Spirit is more than a force proceeding from the Father. Almost all Hebrew readers of the Hebrew scriptures at least knew the Holy Spirit was some kind of force that proceeds from the Father. But Jesus, over and over, makes sure they understand it's a relationship. He's a person. He calls him him and he over and over and over in these passages. That's very important. When you get baptized in the Spirit, you didn't get it. 
you got a greater release of him who you got when you were born again. And now you, but that's a journey into being him anointing you and baptizing you and pouring forth through you and so forth. But it's a he. Secondly, Jesus states that he'll be leaving and the person in the Holy Spirit will be coming. And that's the solution to what we talked about in in point five, three above that the disciples didn't get it. Don't worry. When the Holy Spirit comes, you're going to get it. And if you contrast what they said when, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel in Acts 1 to what they said in Acts 2? After after the Holy Spirit shook the room, tongues of fire, mighty wind, they all began to speak in tongues. They're accused of being drunkards. And Peter starts on that great foundation of being accused of being a drunkard. And he preaches that God has made this, you've been expecting someone called Adonai, You've been expecting Emmanuel, God with us. You've been expecting expecting Messiah. God has made Jesus both this Messiah and this Adonai, and you crucified him, and you're in a whole lot of trouble. (laughs) And they go, what must we do? Repent. Be baptized. They totally get it after that. Let me just tell you, young Christian, older Christian, Every time you have a deeper encounter with the Holy Spirit, the lights go on more. And you've got to have that over and over and over again, or you're blind, deaf, dumb, and stupid. Help us, God. Jesus repeatedly states that it's your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go, the helper will not come to you. But if I do go, I'll send him to you. He says, great, in the same section, he says, greater works than I do shall. Because I was, Jesus is saying, I, Acts 10, 34, in the, in the uh, Cor, Peter's message to Cornelius, in that long message, and right in the middle, he goes, you know about Jesus, a man anointed by the Holy Spirit of God, who went about doing good and healing those who are oppressed by the devil. That's what someone anointed by the Holy Spirit does. He goes about doing good and healing people who are oppressed by the devil. So God bring us to that individually, corporately, together. When teams go out to share the gospel, I don't want to give them a little invitation to a meeting. I want to say, in the name of Jesus, be set free. Now, what Jesus is saying in these passages is while I was on earth, I was the living incarnated word of God, but I was limited to time, space, boundaries. Now the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out and he's going to build communities of Christians that that are my body everywhere. And the Holy Spirit can meet with 10,000 different bodies of Christians at the same time. It's much better now. Now, I grew up, I like to read books like Davy Crockett and Daniel Boom and Geronimo and Sitting Bull and George Armstrong Custer. He didn't end up so good. But uh, 
And I used to say, wouldn't it have been cool to like roam the woods with my musket and shoot squirrels down and stuff. And then I, when I became a Christian, I started reading the gospels. And I was like, wouldn't it have been cool to be able to say in like 1 John 1, what we've handled, what we've seen, what our eyes have seen and our hands have handled, we beheld the word of life. Jesus is saying, you got it better than they do. Isn't that amazing? Now I, you know, that's awesome. I often say, boy, when he talks, when it says that he told them, open the scriptures to them in Luke 24, boy, I'd like to get, I wish somehow we had got that recorded. Guess what? Jesus is saying in John 14, in this passage, the Holy Spirit will bring into your remembrance all that I said to you. I did record it. And the Holy Spirit knows the exact wording and the power of it. And he's going to lead you and guide you into all the truth. What we have now is better than the disciples. They were sent out in Luke 9, and they came back saying, even the demons are subject to us in our name. I meet Christians all the time who've never even cast out a demon. That's not normal. That's just not normal. It's not what he died to give us. He died so that you would become the kind of group of people that the demons tremble when you come into the room. And they go, I know who you are. You're Edwin and Emily. You're, you got the flow of the Holy Spirit. And yeah, man, yeah, it's a twister. Oh, help me. That's really who God wants to make us. That's reality. And it's not that far off. It comes from abiding and drinking of the Holy Spirit in a more radical way. We can, you know, do this because he wants to do this. If you look at yourself, you will constantly be amazed how much you cannot do this. But if you look to him, you will realize he's destined to do this. Well, if I go any further, I'll probably be shot. So we'll pick up there next week in part 5B of the Grace series.